Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Third bonus. Are we starting? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we are. This is the third out of three (laughs) COVID (gasps) bonus talks. Bonus episode reviewing the most updated literature situation report. I like this. Literature situation report. Let's do that. Lit rep. So. Anyway. We're going to start... Back on the 26th. We're going to start, yeah, go back. All right, so we're going to start by going back to the whole thing about pets. And penguins weren't discussed in this article, but... rarely pets. Rarely. Not this one. Not very many people have pangolins for a pet. (laughs) I wonder why. Anyway, I've almost digressed. But, so this is a peer print, not peer reviewed. Pre-print, excuse me, not peer reviewed. But they're talking about the evidence that transmissions from humans to pets does occur, although there is no evidence to suggest the opposite. But they looked at 17 case reports of SARS-CoV-2 infection in animals as of May 15th. All but two of those 17 case reports, animals had fully recovered with only mild respiratory or digestive symptoms. That was close. Close one. Yeah, and I think the funny thing is about six, eight weeks ago, I had a lady whose son had both a cat and a dog that got sick and they died. Well, that was a bummer. And I didn't know what to do. It's like, I don't know. Do we do swab them? I, there were no swabs then. That's true. But in case anyone wants to know, the probable cat to cat cat to cat transmission in Wuhan was the R naught of 1.09. Yeah. So if you got like a hundred cats in your house, it's only going to infect one other cat. There you go. Anyway. And then the cats will eat you. But no. Next study. This is a preprint. So again, not peer reviewed. Now this is actually a meta-analysis of 22 studies, 650 COVID-19 patients. And uh, really looking at the positive detection of their SARS-CoV-2 following symptom onset. And interestingly, what they found was that there's a longer duration of viral detection in the feces as a, and upper respiratory tract in patients who are moderately to severe ill. Um, and actually very similar in children uh, with mild symptoms. So what does it mean? We don't exactly know yet. I think that's what the big magic question is for all these infectious disease doctors. But you can detect it. So I guess when we're all out of swabs and the printer stopped making printed ones... Yeah, do we start checking stool? But I think every echo we have, and when we have infectious disease people on, they're asking about this. They Why are. not a stool test? And um, at some point, should you be? Are you getting this from other bathrooms? You know, so stay tuned. Stay tuned. Yuck. So then we move into a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial of IV remdesivir. From the New England Journal of Medicine. New England Journal of Medicine, Beigel et al. So 
they looked at the IV remdesivir daily for up to nine days, either 200 milligrams in day one and then 100 milligrams daily for up to nine days in adults hospitalized with COVID-19. And they found that compared to placebo, recovery was 32% faster in those who received the remdesivir. However, it was not statistically significant in the in that whole faster recovery, but I, remdesivir was associated with the slower time to mortality. Yeah, I don't know if I like that. It's like, oh, slower death. I'm not yeah. sure. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. And there were fewer adverse events, excuse me, in the remdesivir group. So, you know, remdesivir we had talked about on the Echo, it's maybe not being the perfect medication everyone's thinking it is. and Time will still tell. Exactly. Hmm. Little vaccine stuff. This is also pre-print. Uh, you know, who, who wants to get the vaccine? That's the question. Will people at- get it? They looked at 672 U.S. adults who were surveyed on an online platform in May. And interestingly, 67%, which was 450 people, said they'd get one, which I think is amazing. But who's who's going to accept it more? Well, men, because men are because men are more interested in caring about their oh, health. Or, or men are just more susceptible and to or, death. Yeah, or they men. don't mount the same immune response and they're scared. Well, yeah, maybe men read more and they found out that they no. are at higher risk. But yeah, interestingly, males, and, 72%, and women, 63 The old men like you, over 55. Yeah, we know we're at high risk, man. Give me the shot. 78% want it. Um, and 56% to 64% who are younger said they would get it. And then interestingly, uh, people of Asian descent, 81% said they would get it, whereas only 40 to 74% of those who are not Asian would get it. Mm. I'm sure there's a range because they probably had it broken down by what you ethnicity you claim to be. Yeah. So college and graduate degree holders... Way more likely to get it. So, but interesting, like people who don't get the influenza vaccine are more likely to get the COVID vaccine. Interesting, and but that must be just like the harm thing. Like they're more afraid of it. Mm. But ironically, in two regions, both New York and Chicago, less than fifty percent vaccine acceptance. Man, after what happened in New York, I cannot believe that. Right. Well, uh, moving on to the Lancet. Yes, this is actually a little something Zoo from Lancet. They, they did a, uh, a phase one trial of an adenovirus type 5 vectored COVID-19 vaccine. Looking you, li- at this you like this study. Spike glycoprotein of SARS-CoV-2. Um, and they did this study in Wuhan. And they said that depending on if you got the low, the middle, or the high dose of each vaccine, what happened? Ironically, the people in the low and middle dosages, 83% of all of those people reported um, some type of adverse event, whereas 75% of the high-dose group reported an adverse event. However, adverse events included pain, only 54%, fever, 46%, fatigue, 44%, headache, 39%, muscle pain, 17%. So it sounds a lot like COVID. It's always hard to imagine that if you got the higher dose, you had less side effects. I don't know. No, no, that's weird. Did you mix up the vials? Maybe. I'm just. But no serious adver- adverse events were noted. 
28 days post-vaccination. So we will just have to see. But the good news is, is when you looked at ELISA antibodies and neutralizing antibodies, they did significantly increase at day 14, peaked at 28 days. So that was all a good thing. Well, they can send me one. I'd take it. I'm a man and I'm over 55. Give me the shot. Notice how he only mentioned his manliness and his age, but didn't mention his college and graduate, <laughs> post-graduate education. There's no, I have no proof. Um, <laughs> so some other things. We had something from prospective cohort study BMJ. And uh, they actually looked at this little hospital stay thing uh, with the survivors and uh, non-survivors. And really, the median duration was about 9.3 days in the survivors and all, and actually 12.7 days among non-survivors. So probability of an ICU admission, if you're if you're in, is 48% if you're male. Again, Only 32% for female. Yeah, I know. Median, median hospital stay in that ICU, 10.6 days. And then the case fatality, 23.5% of males, 14.9% of females. Um, but the, the whole rate did increase with age for both genders. This was a study looked at over 9 million healthcare plan enrollees in California and Washington State. So this was a huge group that they looked at. Now, it doesn't say exactly how many patients were positive. They just looked at that health plan, I guess, and how mm. many of that health plan. So that'd be interesting to know how many patients were in that study. But it was published. Yeah. Well, then we had a little study for Buckner at L, and that was actually from Infectious Disease Society of America. And they actually looked at uh, kind of a descriptive study of all the laboratory-confirmed COVID-19 adult patients that were admitted to the medical center, academic medical center in Seattle. And uh, this was over about a three-week period, and they found that 35% were from the senior homes or skilled nursing facilities, uh, which obviously that's we're seeing much more here in Minnesota mm-hmm. uh, than they saw. But the median age was 69, and uh, again, half were women. But that's because that's who makes up nursing homes because no, the men about, all die off. Yeah, so there's, really. you're right. There's more women. We uh, outlive you all. Anyway, three or more comorbidities were present in half the patients, 55% of the patients. 63% had symptoms for five or more days prior to admission. Yeah, this is the one thing I always say when at, the, at the, our hospital. It's like almost 40% um, didn't have a fever right away. No, only 39% had a fever in the first 24 yeah, hours. Yeah. So think about that. 61% didn't have a fever in the first 24 hours. So when people say they're screening everybody at the door for temperature, we're missing like 61%. It's like mm-hmm. you're crawling in. Well, at least you don't have a fever. <laughs> right, especially now we're back to that happy hypoxic thing. 41% had hypoxia. But another one of those big things we talked about with labs, 73% had low lymphocytes. Yeah, and that's risk. That's uh, related to high risk for severe disease. So, yeah, and severe disease, again, 49%. So Overall remember case that. fatality, 33%. Yeah, that's This was good. in 105 patients. Well, then we went to the Archives of Academic Emergency Medicine, Mohedin et al. Mohedin. Anyway, I really like this article because, of course, it's looking at pregnancy. 89 pregnant women, and this was ones that had positive SARS-CoV-2 um, at time of delivery and found that low-grade fever and cough were the predominant symptoms and that when you're looking at the, I don't know, still baby prenatal. in utero, prenatal, before delivery, prenatal fetal, complications. Sh- 
fetal distress, premature rupture of membranes, and preterm labor were the most common prenatal complications. So things we've kind of been suggesting over time, but now there is actually a published study on this. Well, and of those 89, there were no maternal deaths. So Two did require ICU and ventilators. One had multi-organ dysfunction, but again, no deaths. And, and no fetal infections through vertical transmission. So that's... Also huge. I wonder that, you know, this thing doesn't talk about whether they separated the moms and babies at time of delivery, you know, if they quarantined them or what they did with the babies. But, yeah, that I guess that's the next step. Yeah, I didn't mention what kind of cars they drove either, but okay. So moving next to wow. Dagan et al. And this was actually a preprint, uh, again, not peer-reviewed by Dagan. Uh, I know you like this one. No, you, you, you know, I think that the hard part about this one was, you know, they're looking at these risk tools and all this 10 risk factors that predict severe disease. And apparently this risk tool is good and just as good as CDC criteria. However, they don't really get into what the 10 factors are that they're looking at. Yeah. And, you so, know, what? we even looked the paper up and tried to find out what it was, but nothing. So we'll have to kind of. So we're going to put that one on hold. Yep, so next study, also a preprint um, from Zoo et al., uh, looking at um, kind of learning and different... I think it's Zao. Zao? Z-O-U. Oh, maybe. Looking at the R-naughts. So really looking at different models to look at the R-naughts, and that's the how many people are you going to infect if you're positive. And when you compare New York and California... In the full U.S. currently, the basic reproduction number in the U.S. is 2.5, with New York was at 3.6, but California only 2.2. Wow. And if you're a cat in California, it's just over one. Just over one. But so, they have a lot of cool data on their their site. It's covid19.uclaml.org. I just think that's such a cool site. Yeah. Now, Dr. Bell didn't really like this next one that was actually a preprint uh, by Mal Malmgren, but I'm still going to do it because I just think it, it it just says... I'm pretty sure you didn't like this. No, I was the one who liked it because it's like, it shows that in these cases, these cases in Washington State, how things shifted and that there was actually this big decline, 10% decline in cases over 60. And there was a 20% increase in those cases, zero to 39. And that's because as you get older, you get smarter you or more stay away afraid because you have a million comorbidities. But after the peak in in this in Washington state, there was no declining cases from 0 to 19 year olds and the decline among the ages 20 to 39, which I may be a part of, was less than the older age groups because I think it's just showing that my age group just thinks we're, you know, immune to everything indestructible. Whereas I would be like Hiding. Like, I'm an old man. I'm afraid. Ah. So. Watch me cut my wood to heat my house. We're, uh, we're on the May 27th here. We're going to, you know, you didn't like this one, but I wanted to talk about it to this little preprint from Sears. And it's mostly because it's Sears. And I, I used to go to Sears stores when I was young. Now you can't find one. But anyway. I just uh, like the title. Ta- Are we hashtag staying at home to flatten the curve? Yeah. And it's and it's interesting because this seems like this is really small numbers. This whole one percent in reduction in visits to non-essential business is associated with nine point two fewer deaths per hundred million people per day. That doesn't seem like much, but that corresponds to seventy four thousand lives saved nationwide. And if we're talking economics, and I think we all love economics, 
the benefit is $249,745 billion. Billion dollars. One billion dollars. Yeah. So, I mean, it's amazing that 74,000 lives, the the impact that makes on our economic situation here in the U.S. So, All right. Sorry. I just had to do that. You know, it's okay. Um, and then just another little preprint that's just looking at some kind of confusing things we've been talking about lately is, can you find SARS-CoV-2 RNA in blood, or is it all just in all these airways? And you can find it, obviously, in the stool, but again, what does it all mean? But they were actually able to find some detectable RNA, RNA in the blood samples. However, on this one preprint study by Anderson et al., they could not grow anything in any kind of cell culture. Yes, so. Anderson et al. Basically, I mean, it's that whole thing. Like, if you can find RNA on stainless steel in a cruise ship, what does that mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? Is All it, right. Mm. You can do this next Are one. We, uh, From Randad, also a preprint. It's another preprint. It, it says COVID-19 serology at population scale, SARS-CoV-2 specific antibody response in saliva. Wow, that's a big title. But anyway, the bottom line is that because they, there's this simultaneous rise of IgG, IgM, and IgA in both serum and saliva, hey, where's this going to lead us? Are we going to be able to test saliva uh, large scale? Uh, you know, is this going to be helpful? And I think, let's face it, if I got to have somebody tickle under my tongue as opposed to stick a needle in me, I'm going to pick the saliva every time. So I'm hoping it works. There you go. Because they both every they appear to mirror each other. All right. So now we're going to jump ahead a little bit in that day's release to JAMA, which was done by Sen et al. They looked at four states with stay-at-home orders, Colorado, Minnesota, Ohio, and Virginia, and they looked at the cumulative hospitalizations for COVID-19. And with the stay-at-home orders, they did project away from the exponential growth rates after the orders became effective. So it appeared to have been beneficial. They stated that the deviation started two to four days sooner, so whether or not we were anticipating it, but the factors that potentially decreased the hospitalization the most included the school closures, social distancing guidelines, and general pandemic awareness. So good job, Minnesota, until the absolute loss of social distancing that's happened in our state in the last week. We all have long hair, and in some people's cases, they have gray hair. (laughs) Not me. But anyway. What are you Well, I mean, you know, there's social distancing. You can't get your hair cut or colored. Oh, God. You can't get your hair colored. Where are you? (laughs) Like, what? I don't color my hair. I've been coloring my own hair. So Anyway, the 28th. So let's move on. So the first thing was from actually emerging infectious diseases. And uh, I just thought this was interesting because the, the World Health Organization had recommended a bunch of alcohol-based rub formulations, but they didn't actually meet the European standards. So they, they're saying yank them. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you know, they just don't have enough alcohol in them. So Unless you modify and use higher concentration. Yeah. So I thought that was just interesting that Very they're interesting. recommending them, but yet. Oh, Europe, hmm. Mm. Anyway, yeah, at least 80% ethanol or 75% isopropanol in combination with a reduced glycerol concentration. Then you meet the requirements, Yeah, just in case people need to know that. So who? Mm. 
Sometimes right, sometimes not. Well, you know who is right? Who? Goldman et al. Published in the New England Journal of Medicine. We once again are looking at remdesivir. Uh, they did find that in looking at COVID-19 patients, this whole group that did not require mechanical ventilation, they did not find any difference between a five-day course of remdesivir or a 10-day course of remdesivir. The problem is, is this trial lacked placebo control and could not determine if the improvement was attributed to remdesivir. Again, we'll see what happens. You know, I'm not a genius, but gosh, get a placebo control. I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm not a researcher either, but... On purpose. Yeah, well, no, probably I couldn't. I'm not smart enough, probably. Well, also in the New England Journal of Medicine, on the same date of publication, Price Hayward et al. Yeah, this is actually pretty fascinating. And, you know, we've seen a, a lot of data about kind of the differences in... Well, disparate Disparities, yeah, you know. And in black patients, uh, there's this disproportionate uh, hospitalizations and deaths in Louisiana. And, in fact... It's just really stunning. 77% of the hospitalizations and 71% of the deaths were in black patients. So, Even uh, though they only make up 31% of the population. Yeah, so, you know, they're, they're 31% of the hospitalizations, but more than twice of that in the hospitalizations and death. So, you know, and they even controlled for age, comorbidities, use of public insurance, residents in low-income areas, and obesity, and they still had an increased odds of hospitalization. Now, do you want to know my theory? Oh, give it to me. This is from my sister, who is engaged to a black man. So, this is her theory, not mine, actually. I'm stealing it. Is that their occupations, they have have potentially, in her theory, um, more occupations that were considered... Um, necessary. And so they're still working in certain factories or they're still working in the grocery stores. They're still working out in the public and weren't able to socially distance as much potentially. Mm. Just a theory, Uh, especially according to this, when they did account for all those other um, factors. Interesting. When they adjusted for differences in sociodemographic and clinical characteristics on admission, they actually had the same mortality compared to whites. Exactly. So interesting. Mm. So more to come on that. Where are we sure. going? Are we going to Diggins? We're, no, we're going to jump all Skip the way up that. to the JMIR Mental Health Journal from Jacobson. Uh, you liked this one. Yeah, and and actually, it's interesting because uh, I like this computer stuff where people start to start to search for things and how we can tell what's coming or what the disease of the day is, and they really looked at you know, how much people started to search for things associated with mental health. So uh, that whole thing, just before the stay-at-home orders came, they were just like mental health, mental health, mental health. So very interesting. So really cool. And Kurt just loved this one from Psychiatry Research, Lee et al. Yeah. Really likes this whole newly developed and evaluated coronavirus anxiety scale, the CAS, not the CAT, the yeah. CAS, C-A-S. But basically use all these studies to look at all these different things, history of anxiety, different coping mechanisms, yada, yada, social attitudes. Yeah, whether they're satisfied with President Trump or not. That was one of those. So basically this study, this new coronavirus anxiety scale, is now has validity um, to be used in mental health screening practices. Well, I think it's interesting if you look at what we talked about earlier with the cats having R not just over one. 
what would the difference be for the coronavirus anxiety scale if you had a cat? I mean, I think cats are kind of the thing today. But okay, never I, mind. I don't do cats. But anyway, then we move again to psychiatry research at the same journal, different publication date, but McIntyre and Lee. I wonder if it's the same Lee. I don't know. But this this is interesting. So they looked at they, they predict the number of excess suicides in Canada resulting from the impact of COVID on unemployment. So they estimate that an incremental one percentage point increase in unemployment from 2020 to 2021 would be associated with a 1% increase in the suicide rate. That's crazy. And if you only had a small increase in unemployment, so 1.2 to 1.6, that would be an excess of 418 excess suicides in one year. I mean, that's more than one a day. Yeah, but then when you look at unemployment, it's 8.9 to 10.7. They're predicting 2,100 excess suicides in the next year. So that's uh, that's stunning and sad all at the same time. Exactly. All right. So uh, I'm trying to think of where we're at. Are you going to do the... We can just do this one quickly, this preprint. Basically, they found that if you can actually do contract tracing for second-degree contacts, so contacts, contacts of, of contacts, contacts. Um, everybody would be basically at home on quarantine Unless you could just test everybody. So the bottom line is we should just test everybody. And then if you're positive, stay home and don't go anywhere. Yeah. And then we had a little something out of uh, a population-based observational study in Lancet. The Lancet uh, Public Marajan et al. I think I said that right. It sounded good. But one of the things they looked at in France was what happened out, uh, out of the hospital cardiac arrest. And it, it went up a lot. Um and so they were trying to figure out exactly uh, why this occurred. And they hypothesized that these results may be due to direct effect of COVID-19, obviously, and possibly the indirect effect of that lockdown because people didn't want to go to the hospital. So, right. yeah, it went up from 13.4 to 26 per million inhabitants. So big number. So that was a very depressing and sad story. So we're going to kind of move on to... A very interesting publication from the American Journal of Infection Control. Carnino, <laughs> in case we really truly run out of all PPE, we have the solution. Oh, thank God. Thank God. We take regular household paper towels and we pre-treat with a salt-based solution for as little as 10 minutes. Okay, so just soak all your paper towel in your house in salt water. And then you can wear them on your faces, and they are just as effective as medical-grade masks. Sounds a lot like waterboarding. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just like, here, put this wet thing on your face. I'm going to pour some water on it. I don't know. You know, apparently they're doing a study as well where you put tampons in your nose, and then you see whether that makes COVID. No, I'm lying. If only this was a video. Yeah, I'm lying. (laughs) I I just made that up. He's not lying. They're actually in his nose right now. Uh, It seems. (laughs) But, yeah, so if you see people in Walmart walking around, Dripping, with with, dripping paper with salt water fa- on their face. Uh, it's okay. It's like an N95. Yeah, it does work. So Anyway. So next we got somebody, something out of Clinical Infectious Diseases by Huff and Singh. And uh, it's interesting. This is none of those things. Who do you test? And they're just basically saying because so many people are, pre, are pre-symptomatic and asymptomatic but spreading this disease that we need to shift and we need to start testing people. Um, you know, not just with symptoms, but we got to just test everybody so we can get these people off the street. So uh, it's no big revelation. Uh, yes. The more we could test, the more people early on we could capture and get away from the rest of us. 
There you go. All right. So high-risk groups. What is this one about? I don't remember. Oh, yeah, social distancing. Are you talking about Jen et al.? This was another preprint weighted risk score to look at large cities and how many people there are and that if you have a large population, you have a tenfold higher risk than the general population. But even if you're spreading this disease like wildfire, the majority of the deaths still in are in the high risk groups. Mm. But and really, I think the whole bottom line of this whole study. No, is you're that, saying the majority of deaths still occur outside the high risk groups. Oh gosh, you're right. Man, sorry, uh, you just totally muffed I, it. There would have been did. people walking around quoting you. They would have been. So yeah. Anyway, there are still more people who are going to die that are not in the high risk groups because there are more people testing positive in. And that, that group is bigger. Yeah, if you just screwed bigger. that up, Jen et al. would have been calling you. Yep. Be like, listen, Belle, you made me look dumb. So sorry about know. that. Heather just looks dumb. It's okay. Okay. So the Lancet. Oh, you like this one. So I'll let you talk about Lancet HIV. Lancet HIV, Vizcara. They did a study on 51 HIV-infected individuals and um, looked at the differences in COVID and are these patients more likely to have bad outcomes? But they found that the patients who are HIV positive with COVID, you know, compared to those without, they had similar cell counts, but the patients with COVID had that had a worse outcome had at least one comorbidity. So basically the same as the general population. So bottom line, HIV, if your CD4 counts are... Normal, you know, and well-controlled HIV, it really doesn't increase your risk of, you know, having an adverse outcome to COVID unless you also have the same comorbidities that everybody else in the general population has. We're moving to Europe and the Journal of Heart Failure. Yes, moving to Paris. Yes. So investigators in Paris. No, no, you need to say his name. I know. I'm (laughs) Benzikun et al. Benzikun. European Journal of Heart Failure. But he he did a little something about excess uh, how out-of-hospital deaths during COVID. And it's this whole pulmonary embolus thing again. And I think um, it's been this big question with us and I think in our community and other communities, do we test people who suddenly die? And uh, you don't know why. Yeah, I'm thinking yes. Uh, Because one of the problems was that there's this much higher uh, number of pulmonary embolus on CTs post-mortem who had unexplained deaths during the COVID outbreak. Uh, I don't think there were CTs. I think they were actually like on autopsy. They found all these. No, but it says they found pulmonary embolus identified by postmortem CT. Oh. It was much higher than those explained who had unexplained deaths. So, and that's in 2019. So this prevalence probably, you know, in these unexplained deaths was higher during this COVID outbreak. So, um, you know, we may need to consider how do we handle these bodies, right? Because uh, are we wearing PPEs? Are these people infectious for a little bit? And, uh, yeah, so, again, should we test the people who die, especially in a nursing home? Right. I say yes. I do have a question. Yes. How do they do postmortem CT scans to look for PEs? Because that's a contrast. In order to get the contrast to go through the vessels, you need to have a pumping heart. I'm guessing if they die from it, they have pretty, pretty nasty disease in there. That's my guess. It's obviously a good guess, but I just think it's something to think about. I think it'd be hard to convince your hospital. It's like, hey, I'm swinging this guy in. I'm going to take a CT. But it, these are studies, obviously. They are studies. People donate their bodies to science. So, 
I think we're done. I think we are done. Man. Band. That was a long one. Sorry, everybody, but it was a busy week. A lot of good studies. And yeah, I hope you found this enjoyable. We like doing this. We're reading these things anyway, so we figured. We might as well tell you what they are, too. Yeah. It took us a lot longer than the half an hour to read them that we just gave you. So. And the, our, uh, our in-house band, Battle Legs, maybe better play something fancy because I'm pretty tired and I may fall asleep. <laughs> so. See you so, Tuesday. Thanks again. Thanks again.